Amen. Well, if you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through the end of the chapter, which is 38. I only printed verse 30, so you have room for notes. And I will be preaching, though, on the whole text. Last time we saw Lot, on the one hand, showing kindness, hospitality to strangers, showing the fruit of a regenerate heart as he loved his neighbor as himself. But on the other hand, we saw Lot willing to give up his own daughters to sexual immorality when he should have died before he let that happen. And we saw the city of Sodom, emblematic of the other cities of the plain, the biggest city as it were, but they were all this way, given over to many sins, violence, pride, luxury, abundance, And a lack of hospitality to be sure. But the primary sin that the Holy Spirit wanted us to see in the text itself unmistakably was the very mark of Sodom. The spirit of it. And that was the sin of homosexuality, of sodomy. As the New Testament explicitly declares in Jude verse 7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them Listen, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. That's what the text says. That's what the New Testament says they did. They gave themselves over to sexual immorality. That's the broad term. Even, you could translate it, even this kind of sexual immorality rather. Gone after strange flesh. Another flesh. The word is heteros. Different Another different from what? Another different from what nature would say. The conjugal nature of male and female. What is natural that we would go after? This is another, a different heteros. We get the word heresy from. Another gospel. That was their sin. They gave themselves over to it, notice. And they went after it. They pursued it. And the scripture says they are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. That's all one verse, Jude 7. It explains for us the very reason for its judgment and the very sin that they committed to that degree. And so we saw there was nothing left because they gave themselves over. There was no one that resisted. There was no one who objected. There was no one who said, hey, this is wrong. This is unnatural. Turn from this sin. There was no one who did that anymore. So all God could do was judge them. And that's what he did. And in our text today, we're going to see that judgment fall. It is a very serious and sober thing. And yet it is in the scriptures. And it's spoken of repeatedly in the New Testament, always as an example for us. So we need to hear and heed and listen to this example that we would be blessed by it today. Let's pray. As we turn to God's word. Father, again, we just ask for your blessing. It's difficult for us to hear of judgment. We naturally shrink from it. Sometimes we think others deserve it. And so we even are tempted to self-righteousness in texts like these. But Father, how we pray that you would humble our hearts. Cause us to fear you. Not as our judge. But as the judge. And that judgment day will be terrible for many. And so let us fear you, Lord, even as we trust and know that we are delivered from judgment, that we would live more carefully before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning again in Genesis chapter 19, verse 15. This is God's holy word. 
When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out, and they set him outside the city. So it came to pass... When they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me, and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also. In that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zor. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. The word of the Lord. I want you to notice, first of all, this morning, God's patience with his people. I want you to notice God's patience with his people. So it's been an entire night. Dawn has come, and Lot is still in The city, the angels are urging them to leave. Hurry, arise, take your wife, take your daughters, the two daughters, the two single daughters who are with you, and leave. And then we read in verse 16, Lot lingered. He stays. He's hesitating. There's a lot of speculation here, and it's all speculation. There could be some negative reasons why Lot is lingering. He owns a house, no doubt a nice house in Sodom. He sat at the gate, whether he was part of the ruling council or just an important prominent businessman. He's been in the city for years. Remember, he started off outside the city in a tent. I'm just going to trade. I'm just going to, you know, have a financial relationship. Now he's in the city. His daughters have married or are engaged to marry Sodomites. He lingers. He's got power. 
He's got wealth. He's got status. He's got pleasure. He's got luxury. Yeah, there's a lot of sin. And he mourned over that sin and didn't like it. But it was worth it. That's one of the speculations. The other speculation is a positive one. Lot cared for the people in the city. He called them brethren the night before. He urges them not to do this wickedness. He doesn't want to see them judged. He didn't want to see his family judged when the angels tell him to warn his family. He sends messengers out. He warns his sons-in-law. He's pleading with them to listen to the angels. God's going to judge the city. He doesn't want to see his family destroyed. He's still trying to save them. He's sending out more messengers. That could be the case too. Could be positive or negative. It could be a combination. But he lingered. And so the angels take action. They take matters into their own hands. In a very unique verse, the men, the angels, took hold of his hand, his wife's hands, and the hands of his two daughters. And it says this, the Lord being merciful to him. The Lord being merciful to him. Don't begrudge the Lord's mercy to Lot, as much of a mixed bag as he is. How many times have you lingered too long in sin when you knew you should get out of it, when you knew it was harmful, when you knew you should turn away, but you lingered, you had your reasons. And God continued to be patient with you and long-suffering with you. And maybe you had to go through some judgments. Lot's going to lose everything, by the way. But God was merciful to you and he brought you out. And how many of us know that we should be putting on Christ in a more effectual way? That we should pray more? And we can do that. We're able to. We can, we can read our Bible more. We're able to do that. Maybe we should be more active at church. I know I should do that ministry. I have the time. But, and we linger. And we don't do what we know we should do. Don't begrudge them the mercy of God to others who are wicked and sinful. He's merciful to us. He allows us to linger and sometimes he drags us away from the sins that we don't want to leave as he dragged Lot and his daughters and his wife out of the house. And when he gets them out, this urgent message, escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Don't stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. You would think the next verse is going to say, and Lot ran over the two angels as he fled to the mountains. (laughs) Get out of my way. No. And again, one of the strangest verses and passages. The next three verses, Lot said, please, no, my Lord. In fact, if you look in the Hebrew, the word please in, in the um, Hebrew language, or, or sometimes uh, it's translated, I pray thee, but it's what the word for please, please, nah, you know, it's pleading. Four times in those three verses. You only see it two, I think, in the New King James, two or three. But it's four times. Please, 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 please. And what's his, what's his plea here? Verse 19. Basically, it's too difficult to go to the mountains. That's, a, that's too hard for me. Yeah, I can't be saved by going to the mountains. I, that's hard. It's too far. It's a climb. Nobody likes going up the mountains, Right? We've climbed, Robert and I climbed some mountains in Colorado. It was fun. We weren't fleeing fire and brimstone, thankfully. And we were doing it by choice. And, but Lot doesn't want to do that. It's hard. Lest some evil overtake me. The judgment's going to catch up. Or maybe some brigands on the way. I don't know. It's, it's too hard. I, there's, there's, there's a lot of self-interest and selfishness and sin in this prayer. There's no doubt about that. But there's also faith in this prayer. 
Notice what Lot bases it on. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. He's basing his plea on God's grace. Because I have found favor in your sight, and he did. He was a man of faith. We know that from the New Testament. Righteous Lot, righteous Lot, righteous Lot. We're only righteous by faith. Lot's a believer, somehow, some way. He found favor in God's sight. Because you've found favor, and you've even now increased your mercies. He sees God's grace in his life and dragging him out. Because you've done this. I mean, this is a bold prayer. But it's based on what God has done. You have shown me favor. You have increased your mercy. Therefore, I'm going to ask for something else. You know what? Studying this text this week, I I prayed that way this week for certain things. Lord, because I found favor in your sight and because you've increased your mercy, deliver me even from this thing. Isn't it a little thing, Lord? It's just a little thing. I prayed that way this week. Because God has shown me mercy. Because God has shown me favor. Yeah, there's some... There's some sin in this verse, but there's some faith in this verse. And God grants the verse through the angel. He grants it. Verse 21, he said to him, see, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. In other words, I'm convinced, and most of the commentators are, the Reformed commentators especially, that God was going to overthrow Zor. It was going to be Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zor. All five. But when Lot prays for Zor, God, through the angel, spares Zor. Now remember, when when Abraham prayed, God was amazingly gracious. And he got all the way down to ten. If just ten people were in all five of these cities, ten total people, all five would be spared. There wasn't ten. Now that Lot's going to go, and it seems like he understands that when he says, Zor's a little place. It's the smallest. And if I go there... There will be one righteous person there. And it seems like that was enough salt to spare that city. It seems to me that's how God now spares the one out of the five. But it would have been included but for Lot's prayer. Lot pleads for Zor and the city is spared. Because God had shown mercy to him. And so he prayed for this city. And again, it may be that Lot didn't want to live in the mountains in the solitary place. He wanted to stay in a city because it is easier life. He was real successful in Sodom. He's hoping to restart his businesses. Could be all of that. And yet he still pleads based on God's grace and God's mercy. And he pleads for the city. He doesn't plead, again, that God will restore his businesses and his wealth. Let me flee there for my life. You're going to spare my life. Let me go there. And the angel grants the prayer. And, verse 22, hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Why can he do nothing until Lot gets there? Because the angels were sent from God for two reasons. That's what we learn right here. To destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, yes. They were going down to investigate it. We saw how there's a sense in which that, that night before was the test. Sodom and Gomorrah showed themselves to be completely given over to debauchery, wanting to violate these two men, and were going to harm Lot for protecting them. Nobody was put, the whole city was there, remember? Old, young, the furthest reaches, everyone, all the people. And yet Lot shows himself to be righteous in that he shows love to the stranger. And so that test happened. We saw that. And so God has judged and is about to judge the city. And perhaps... 
God answers his prayer for Zor. God answers Abram's prayer. But judgment is going to fall. But why doesn't it fall? Why do the angels again say, hurry, escape there? Because their second mission was to save Lot. They were sent to destroy the cities. But they were also sent to save Lot. And until Lot is safe, and it was the mountains, but in God's providence... It's the city of Zor because Lot has asked for Zor, but that's now the place of sanctuary. And so the angels cannot judge until Lot is safe. And that's a principle in scripture. God will never bring his punitive wrath on his people. That can't happen because Jesus took it on the cross. We face God's chastenings, absolutely. Therefore are good, but they are painful. We undergo different judgments that we can bring on ourselves in this world as Lot does as David did in his life. Many in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church were bringing judgments on their lives. Jesus talks to the seven churches about different judgments, yes, but God's love and God's salvation, and it's never his wrath. Jesus took the wrath on the cross, and that's why the angels can't do anything until Lot is safe. We see this principle over and over again in scripture. So, for example, in Revelation chapter 7, Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. He cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, kind of like what we're seeing here, till we have sealed the servants of God on their forehead. In other words, until we have protected God's people, till they're preserved, till they're safe. No judgment, no wrath, until the people of God are protected. That's why the angels cannot judge and destroy the city until Lot is saved. But I want to show you that in this patient, God's patience with his people, that you see God answering the prayers of his people, answering the prayers of Abram and answering the prayers even of Lot. So secondly, I want you to notice God's wrath against his enemies. Notice God's wrath against his enemies. Well, fire and brimstone fall in verse 24. The Lord rained brimstone and fire on, notice this, on Sodom and Gomorrah and obviously the rest of the cities from the Lord out of the heavens. All right, Sodom and Gomorrah are emblematic. Remember, they're the two big ones, but sometimes it just says Sodom. It's the chief one. And so these cities are now destroyed. The day Lot left Sodom, this is what we saw in our New Testament reading. Fire and brimstone fell. That's what Jesus says. The day he left. Just like the day Noah entered the ark, the floods came and destroyed them all away. Uh, destroyed them all. Beloved, the only thing that keeps God's judgment from falling on this world is that he has people to save. That's the only reason. If all of the elect were pulled out of this world, God's judgment would fall that day. That's the principle of scripture. God doesn't keep the world of sinners going. If it was all reprobate sinners, oh yeah, I'm just going to let them go and continue to do wickedness. Judgment will fall. It doesn't fall because God has more people to save. It didn't fall on Sodom until Lot was saved. It didn't fall until they had filled up their sins. And it's the very day that he leaves, judgment falls. And the very day Noah gets on the ark, judgment falls. Because God, again, does not delay once he has saved his people. Now, one of the things that we see in our world today, and sometimes I think we're tempted to, is that we really don't believe in God's, like, supernatural power or judgment. Judgment Day is often mocked 
by the world. And I can think of different um, examples in our culture. You know, they'll show the guy with the robe or something out. You know, judgment is coming in a little newspaper comic and everybody laughs at him for whatever reason. Or, you know, um, some of the popular culture. I remember um, Pat Benatar, I think it was, had this song, Hell is for Children, you know. It's, it's fairy tales. And the Bible talks about scoffers mocking God's judgment. Second Peter, verse 3. Where is the pro- Scoffers will mock at God's judgment saying, where is the promise of his coming? Why doesn't it come? Where is it? Where is it come? Remember uh, Lot's sons-in-laws. They thought he was joking. It's a big joke that God's going to judge. And again, God tarries because he has more to save. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some count slowness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. As long as there are still elect people in the world that haven't repented yet, this world's going to go on. But you know what that means? That sinners are going to continue to live. And you know what that means? That they're still going to do bad things. And that means that they're still going to be suffering. And there's still going to be pain. And there's still going to be sorrow. But God allows it to go on because he's not going to lose one. Jesus said, I lose not one of those whom the Father has given to me. But when he gets the last one, the judgment will fall. And God's judgment is terrible. And that's one of the reasons why this text is here. And it's called an example that we would fear the Lord. And all those songs, and I love it, Frank. Uh, I don't see where Frank is, but he picked all those songs about the fear of the Lord. There's a negative fear that God delivers us from. Perfect love cast out fear. That kind of bad fear. But there's a positive fear that if you're a Christian, you alone have. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? The fear of the Lord that we want, that we want to put on more. Listen to some scriptures that talk about it. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 6, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Maybe one of the reasons why you might be struggling with that particular sin in your life is that you're not fearing God enough. Because it's by the fear of the Lord that one departs from evil. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. To turn one away from the snares of death, the same thing. Job 28, 28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart, d- depart from evil, that is understanding. It's the fear of the Lord over and over again that is beneficial to the people of God. Again, we're not fearing God as, oh, God's going to judge me and throw me into hell if I don't do the right stuff. But we fear the God who is the judge, who is going to judge all flesh. That is a sobering thing. That needs to be a sobering thing. I feared my father that way. I never feared that my father would hurt me. But I feared the fact that we had rules in the house. And it helped me to not break them. There were certain things that I did not do. As many things as I did do. Because I feared my father. Again, not that he would kill me. But I feared the judgment that he would bring. And I feared also, in a sense, disappointing him. I'm my father's son. How can I do that? There's that element to it, too, in the scriptures. We love the Lord. We don't want to do what he hates. We don't want to grieve him, grieve the Holy Spirit. But judgment day is a fearful day. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. I saw the great white throne and him who sat on it, listen, from whose face the earth and heaven fled. And heaven. The angels cover their faces in his presence. Right? We need to... We need to fear the Lord. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, listen, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Those things go together. 
If you can't see those things going together, you're not thinking of the fear of the Lord right. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Maybe that's why the church grew and did so well in the first century, because they feared the Lord. They understood what it meant. How do we fear the Lord? Well, the enemy of the fear of the Lord is unbelief. When we don't believe, we lose our fear. When we don't believe. When we don't believe, God is going to judge someday. When we don't believe that we deserve the wrath of God apart from the blood of Christ. When we don't believe, we lose the fear of the Lord. Romans 11 verse 20. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. But you stand by faith. Therefore, listen. Because you stand by faith, do not be haughty, but fear. That's what the Holy Spirit says in the New Testament. Because you stand by faith. Fear isn't opposed to that. Not the good fear of the Lord that we want. But I think part of the reason that the world is plunging into all kinds of sins that we've really never seen before in the history of mankind. We've never seen before. There's never been a creation of all kinds of genders beyond God made them male and female. Right? There's been unnatural sex before, but as far as we know from the written records, there's never been marriage that's been accepted in that. It was never marriage. Justice Samuel Alito wrote that in 2000 in his paper. We are the first society to ever have a marriage that's other than men and women. There are so many things that we're committing, and I think it's because we don't believe this. It's a fairy tale. God's not going to judge. I'm going to read to you from some articles. SmithsonianMag.com, Scientific Reports Journal, February 2023. Smithsonian is from 2021. There was a six-year-long six study by uh, 21 scientists that was published recently. And the insert says, quote, Ancient cities' destruction by cosmic airburst may have inspired the biblical story of Sodom. 2023 and 2021. What am I doing? I'm saying that if this really happened, there should be some evidence that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. That's what the Bible says. I did a little bit of this in the flood of Noah. I'm not saying that God doesn't work supernaturally. I'm saying the opposite. He does. But when God does something like that, we should see the evidence. And I think that there is evidence. And I think it's important to notice it so that we don't relegate things like this to a fairy tale or try to spiritualize them. Jesus said, did you see it in the New Testament? Jesus said and believed that according to Jesus, listen to the, the details that Jesus ascribes to the scriptures. It was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. And, but on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, now listen, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus said it literally happened. Because he said, such it will be on the day of the Son of Man. In other words, if there is a day Jesus is coming back, then Sodom and Gomorrah really happened. But if Jesus isn't coming back as a fairy tale, then maybe that's a fairy tale. You can't have one without the other. Jesus actually affirms the flood of Noah. He affirms Jonah, the sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. So will the Son of Man be. If Jonah didn't literally happen, Jesus didn't die for three days. Jesus affirms all the embarrassing supernatural events in the Old Testament. It's really troubling for the, the scholars. He affirms them all. Lot, Gomorrah, 
Adam and Eve created by God since the beginning of creation, not 17 billion years in. Since the beginning of the creation, he made them male and female. How can that be if it's 17 billion and change in from the beginning? Jesus affirms all of the embarrassing stuff in the scriptures. Do you know why? Because it's true. And if we believe it's true, we will fear the Lord more. I'm convinced of that. Let me give you some information from these articles. Around 1750 to 1650 BC, the Bronze Bronze Age city of Tel El Hammam was wiped out by a blast, listen, 1,000 times more powerful than the atomic bomb used at Hiroshima. This is Scientific Journal 2023, okay? And it's, it's many others. You can go BBC, the, the story's there, all of them. A thousand times more powerful than the atomic bomb. The northeast section of the Dead Sea of Jordan Valley is where we see this, all right? The researchers concluded, listen, that warfare, fire, a volcanic eruption, and an earthquake were unlikely culprits as these events could not have produced the intense heat that caused the melting that's recorded at the scene. There were buildings that were four and five stories tall. They were completely incinerated, decimated, pulverized, down to just a few feet above the surface. Everything was completely obliterated. Mud bricks in walls 13 feet wide, gone. At first they, they reasoned they must, people must have carried them off because there's nothing in this world that could completely obliterate them. Not, not mud bricks. 13 feet wide. They're, then they realized that it had to happen. And so what they have said is that a basically, a, a, it's called a space rock, a mediator. They call it a cosmic airburst, something from space. Because nothing on this world can do what they're seeing was done in this city. All right, let me continue. The air temperatures rapidly rose above 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit. These are secular scientists saying this is what we see. And they could tell that from the minerals that they're finding in the, in the heat. 3,600, over 2,000 degrees Celsius. Clothing and wood immediately would have burst into flames. Swords, spears, mud bricks, pottery, metal melted. Immediately the city was in flame. Seconds after the blast, this is still from the articles, a shock wave ripped through the city at a speed of roughly 740 miles per hour, faster than the worst tornado ever recorded. The city's buildings were reduced to foundations and rubble. None of the thousands of people or animals survived. Their bodies were torn apart. Their bones blasted into small fragments. These are all word-for-word quotes. Quote, quote, quote. Corroborating the idea that the airburst caused the destruction, the researchers found melted metals and unusual mineral fragments, diamondoids among the city's ruins. Everything's completely incinerated and melted, and nothing can do that in this world. A cosmic airburst, they say, a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. Steve Collins, the principal archaeologist at Tel El Hamont, Tel is just a mound, so the mound where they find the ruins. Uh, considering the scientist's evidence, claimed that the incineration matched the place and timing of the biblical account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Secular scientists, listen to this. This brought down on him what in academic circles might be called hellfire. You don't say the Bible might be true if you're a scientist. You don't say that. You can't say that, you, you horrible person. Another quote, all the observations stated in Genesis are consistent with the cosmic airburst. 
says Kennett, one of the scientists, in a statement. But there's no scientific proof that the destroyed city is indeed Sodom of the Old Testament. No, it just happened exactly the way the Bible says. It's exactly in the same place and exactly in the time. But there's no proof that it happened. This is what we see in this region. By the way, it used to be reasoned by by Bible-believing exegetes that, you know, it must have been a volcano because it couldn't be fire and it couldn't be war because it says it rained down on heaven and only a volcano would throw ash and fire in the air that would rain down. The problem is there's no evidence for any volcanic activity in the Dead Sea Valley. That's always been the case. So even the scholars who tried to find, the Bible-believing scholars who tried to find some kind of natural explanation, and God certainly could have used a volcano, I'm not saying. But it's not there. But all this stuff is there. Now, what, what about Lot's wife? This is embarrassing, right? Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Once again, Jesus embarrasses us. He really thinks this happened. The Bible says she looked behind her and she became a pillar of salt. What in the world is this? From the abstract of the article again, February 2023 Scientific Journal, an airburst-related influx of salt produced hypersalinity. It inhibited agriculture and caused a 300 to 600-year abandonment of over 120 regional settlements for 25 kilometers. To this day, the Dead Sea Valley is full of great blocks of sulfur and saltpeter vapor as sulfur hang in the air. No plants can grow there. Nothing lives there. To this day, the sea is heated by subterraneous springs. There are no animals. There are no plants. Objects left there quickly encrust with salt. If you get a chance today, go on your browser and look up Dead Sea salted stuff or salted items or salt encrusted items. And you'll see, any, you'll see driftwood that goes down there because nothing grows, but stuff flows into the Dead Sea and, and old you know, dried up bushes. They're all covered with salt. Everything's salt encrusted. Rocks, everything's just covered with salt. There's a, uh, there's a dress that someone left hanging It's all a salt dress. Look up salt dress. Dead Sea salt dress. I guarantee you'll find it. This is 3,700 years later. At the time it was happening, there was a saline, uh, hypersalinity saltiness in the air that was beyond description. And when Lot's wife looked back, the protection that God had on her was lifted. And she encrusted completely with salt immediately as all of them would have if God would not have blessed them and protect them. It happens there today. And so, beloved, and by the way, I want to say this much. What about theologically Lot's wife turning into salt? How can God do that to her? She just looked behind her, right? What's the big deal? Just like Adam and Eve, they just took one bite of fruit Right? What's the big deal? Boy, you really misunderstand scripture if you think, think those are the cases. What does Jesus talk about when he refers to this? Remember Lot's wife. He talks about not going back to the house to get your stuff. Right? Not going back for your property. In other words, Lot's wife in her heart was still longing for Sodom. She wanted what she was losing in Sodom. And that's why judgment fell on her. We see that in many places in scripture. That same idea. When we, when we want the things of this world and not the things of God. Jesus talks about those who put their hand to the plow, right? And look back. They're not fit for the kingdom of God. 
That's what we see over and over again in Scripture, this idea of turning back, turning back to sin. God will cast off. It's a warning that we have to rid our hearts of the idols that we have. All right? So I believe that we have plenty of reason to believe that this is true. Thirdly, I want you to notice the effectiveness of prayer, the effectiveness of prayer. We've already seen Lot's request, the heavenly messenger, uh, by the providence of God, by God's permission, obviously, granting it. You don't pray to angels, but the angel is the messenger, and he pleads with the messenger. It would have been the right thing to do. But in the, in the angel submitting to God, knowing that God granted the prayer, grants, uh, uh, delivers the message that it was granted. But then look at verses 27 to 29. We see Abram coming back into the picture. Why? Because we also see that it was because of Abram's intercession for Lot that Lot was spared. Now, Abram never intercedes for Lot by name. He intercedes for the city. If you read the passage of chapter 18, he never mentions Lot. But he intercedes, and God's mercy in Lot, to hear Abram's prayer causes God to rescue Lot. Now, Lot would have never suffered God's wrath, but maybe the mob would have killed him that night. Or maybe something else. And it would have been Lot's going, you know, it would have been, that death would have brought Lot to heaven. Maybe God would have even, in some way, just caused Lot to die before his wrath fell, but... But he, it says, our text says, God remembered Abraham and he sent Lot out of the midst of the city. And so it is important for us, beloved, to intercede. There is so many examples in scripture of God's having someone raised up as an intercessor. Moses, over and over again, intercedes for the people when over and over again God was going to destroy them and God relents. Samuel intercedes for all the people when they sin and they want a king and he prays for them and God forgives. David intercedes for all the people when God is judging. He said, no, let your judgment fall on me. Daniel in captivity pleads for all the people, ask God to forgive their sins, bring them back to the land. Ezra, when they're brought back, pleads for the people as they're trying to build the temple that God would forgive their sins. Over and over again, we get these, these intercessors, these mediators. But all of their intercession and all of their mediation was only effective because it was through Christ, who is the only and ultimate mediator. These types and shadows were necessary before Christ came. But Christ is the one who intercedes. My little children, I write these things so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Christ is even at the right hand of God. He makes intercession for us, Romans says. So there he is making intercession. But because he makes intercession for us, and because we are now in the New Testament all priests, part of our duty is to intercede for one another and to intercede for the city. Every one of you. You don't come to me. There are no priests in the New Testament. Protestantism did away with that. You don't go through a man to get to God. You all go directly to God. You're all priests equally. No more types, no more shadows. I'm not a priest. Don't ever call me father. Hypo. (laughs) Pastor, reverend, you, dummy, whatever. We're not priests. Ministers are not priests. The, the, The reformers stopped that. And they don't come in the back door some other way. We are the priests, beloved, and therefore we are commanded, all of us, to intercede. 1 Timothy 2.1. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, listen, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men. That's the duty of the church. That's the duty of the Christian. And that's one of the reasons why 
included in my prayer today the prayer for the city. Because Abram prayed for the city. And Lot prayed for the city. And God heard their prayers and showed mercy. Maybe the church isn't praying enough for the, for the nation. for the When I say see, I mean the people, the world, the villages, the little towns like Salzburg. Salzburg leads a lot of prayer. A little bit, maybe less prayer since I'm not there causing trouble, but... We should be interceding because God answers prayer. We see that in the text. Fourthly and lastly, I want you to notice the effectiveness of God's grace. The effectiveness of God's grace. So Lot said it was too hard to flee to the mountains. So God grants him to go to Zor. But what happens when he gets in Zor? Lot begins to do what he used to do. What he did when he went down to Sodom in the first place. He saw the temporal, physical benefits of Sodom. So that's where he wants to move. What does he see when he sees God's judgment fall? The temporal, physical destruction. And where does he do? He's afraid now when he goes to the mountain. The very place that was too hard a minute ago. Oh, it's not too hard when he sees and gets afraid. Do you see what Lot's doing? He's doing the same thing. He's judging by his eyes and his senses and not by the word of God. God said, I will spare Zor. There is no place safer in the world than Zor. And he's afraid to stay there. Because he doesn't believe God. Lot is still doing this. He's still making the mistake. And just as he brought harm to his house, when he moved close to Sodom, looking only at the temporal, gets what happens to his house when he goes to the mountains. I didn't read it, but verse 31. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. They're up in the mountains now. Right there in the middle of nowhere. They can't take husbands, and they're concerned about their father's name and the progeny that they want to have. And again, at that time, very important, especially if maybe one of them might be the Messiah's mom. And so they, they're concerned. They need to have kids. So what do they do? Well, we know what they do. They decide to get dad drunk and to have children from their father. Now think about that. These girls have left Sodom. But Sodom is in them. And so, there's something else we see. They've learned from their dad. They're chips off the old block. I want you to think about what happened in the city. Lot sought to hand his daughters over to sinful sex without their consent in order to secure his legitimate concerns of protecting his guests. All of this bad wickedness to do this good end. The ends justify the means. What do his daughters do? Well, Lot's daughters desire to hand him over to sinful sex without his consent in order to secure their legitimate concerns. The ends justify the means. They're doing just like they learned from their father. This is why it's so important, beloved. That we pay attention to how we set an example for our children. We have that uh, passage in Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That cuts both ways. That's part of why the judgment of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. That just naturally happens. And it's in all the literature and all the studies show that. If you're raised in an abusive house, good chance you'll be an abuser. You're raised in an alcoholic house, much higher chance of being an alcoholic. Over and over again, across the board, undeniable. The evidence is conclusive. 
This is human nature. Has nothing to do with salvation. Has nothing to do with faith. It's just people. You set a bad example in front of kids, chances are they're going to suffer for it. You set a good example, they got a much better chance of being a decent person. And it's funny because the studies also, too, it's about in the first four to six years of life. After that, pretty much set. And this is what these daughters do. And notice they get dad drunk. And that's on lot. The text says he didn't know, didn't know. They got into the point of blacking out. I've been there. I understand what that was like. Where people tell you the next day stuff you did, you did not remember. And that's what, that's what the text says. The lot did not know when they lied down and when they got up. He didn't know. He got that drunk. So he's innocent of, of wanting or, or, or intentionally doing this. But he got drunk. He knows he's getting drunk. He knows when he's had too many. And so he allows himself to sin. The girls get him to sin. I mean, this, this house is still a mess. It's a believer's house. And you know what? God is not done with this house. Do you think God's grace is too weak to meet your mess? Do you think that maybe, oh, you know, I'll never be able to grow in the Lord. God's written me off. God's cursed me. I've counseled people who believe that. God's grace to you is always believe, repent, and you'll be saved and you'll be blessed. I don't care where you are. Believe, repent, you'll be saved and you will be blessed. You will have Christ. You will have all of him. There is no mess that's too great for God. How do I know that? How do I know that for certain in this crazy, messy house? Because Lot and his older daughter, by the way, they brazenly named their kids Moab from father, from dad. That's where we that's his name. Ben Ami, son of my people. The older daughter names Moab, right? The father of the Moabites, the text tells us. The father of the Moabites is Lot and his daughter. That's a really shameful way of coming into existence, right? Even at the time of Adam and Eve, when brothers and sisters were supposed to marry, and the gene pool was so rich, there was no risk of, of uh, a birth defect or anything like that, uh, and they were supposed to do that. But never was parent-child allowed. Never. That's unnatural. That was the sin of Sodom. Unnatural. They're okay to do, still, the unnatural. But what I want you to notice, that this unnatural union that creates this people, they still are not beyond the grace of God. And we know this for absolute certain because Lot and his older daughter are the great, 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 great grandparents of Ruth, the Moabitess. And that means that Ruth, the Moabitess, is the great, 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 great grandmother of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes through Lot and his older daughter. Don't tell me that your mess is too great for the grace of God. That's what we learn in this text, beloved. The grace of Almighty God will find you and is offered to you right now. All you have to do is confess your sin, believe in the Lord Jesus, and he can use you in ways beyond your dreams. I don't care your origin story. I don't care your childhood. I don't care. This is the grandparents of Jesus right here in a cave overlooking the destroyed cities of the plain. God's grace can save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for your grace. Because but for your grace, we would be the citizens of Sodom banging on the door saying, bring them out. But you have saved us. You have rescued us. Sometimes you've even dragged us out of our sins. Don't give up on us. Continue to be with us. We pray this confidently and certainly because we come to you in Jesus' name who took away our sins. And so, Lord God, bless your people. Glorify your name. Cause us to love and to serve you and one another. In Jesus' name, amen.